Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now let's uh, get on with the show. As I put out uh, over at the home blog and a couple of other places, for the career-minded professional, um, you really only have a couple of chances uh, to, to really get the ball rolling early. And you've got to push hard. you got to push strong. Uh, for those that saw the uh, miniseries on John Adams or uh, read the book, John Adams had great advice to his oldest son who, and also future president uh, when he was a young lawyer that you have to work longer hours than anybody else. You have to work every day of the week, and you have to find a way to work harder, longer, and better than anyone else around. And if anybody can tell you in the military, that's also required. And if you want to have a, a multidimensional life, you obviously many people want to have a family, and that can create challenges. Uh, men, I always like to use the example of uh, retired Rear Admiral and former Congressman Sestak, who waited until he had Made uh, made 06 before he decided to get married. And men have that option. But a lot of our shipmates, they have two X vice and X and a Y chromosome, and women have an extra challenge. Is if you want to, if you can't have it all, at least have a lot of it. If you want to have a family, uh, Mother Nature has given um, our female shipmates a little bit of more narrow window by which to do things. And that also overlaps that critical time period when people need to really make an impression. And how do you do both? It both suits yourself, your spouse, and your children's best interest. And that's what we're going to focus on today with two guests that I think are going to cover it from uh, similar angles, but also slightly different. Our first guest is going to be Major Jeanette Haney, United States Marine Corps Reserve. She is a 1998 graduate from the U.S. Naval Academy. She's an AH-1 Whiskey Cobra pilot and she currently continues to serve the nation in a reservist role out of the Pentagon, and she's also working through graduate school. And for those that uh, read Eagle One and myself's occasional writings over the Naval Institute blog, you can also find Jeanette's writings there. For the second half of the show, our guest will be Robin Roche-Paul. She's a U.S. Navy veteran, also wife of a chief, and she is the author of the book Breastfeeding in Combat Boots, but, hey, let's get to our first guest, Jeanette. Welcome to Midrats. Thank you, sir, and thanks for having me on. Really, I, and we were going to have you on earlier this summer, um, but uh, we all have lives that we have to do, and we're really glad that we're able to, to get you before the summer's over with. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, your writings over the Naval Institute blog, and I'm really glad you kind of took that step um, to, to put yourself and your thoughts out there to bring a perspective on somebody that has significant fleet experience but also uh, has decided that you want to, to bring the next generation of Marines into the world and to bring a family as well. But before we get into that, I think uh, I I got my commission uh, back at the end of the 1980s, so I was in that first generation that really served with numbers of women uh, almost from the very beginning. And, of course, our, our sailors and Marines today, uh, they have a very different world. That plus, where working with women on a regular basis is the normal. It's not the exception. There's nothing radical. There's nothing unusual about it. It's the nature of the business. And uh, a good friend of mine uh, who's a little bit older than I was, she was in one of the first classes at the Naval Academy who accepted uh, women. And one thing I always got a kick out of is uh, Naval Academy can be tribalistic on a good day, but the women who graduate from Naval Academy has a, have an impressive support structure uh, for each other that really spans generations. And you come from a generation after her, graduate from the Academy in 98. And I wonder if you could just as, as a start-off question, because that's kind of our incubator for our, our, our young leaders who happen to be women. With the with the young Naval Academy graduates who are women today, 
some of the challenges that, that, that you experienced there, which ones have remained the same, and what has the Navy and the Naval Academy gotten better at since you graduated to help those young leaders really be able to, to join the fleet on an equal footing with their male counterparts? Um, well, that, that's an interesting question. I, uh, I've got to be honest about the tribalistic part of it. It's it's kind of funny. We Alumni-wise, I think the women – have kept in touch pretty well. Um, there's like a, a network of uh, female graduates from the Naval Academy, kind of one of those user groups where you can send out messages and stuff. But when I was there, um, we kind of avoided that because you didn't want to identify as, oh, I'm a group with a group of women and all that. And I think that kind of, that may have gone by the wayside with the younger classes because there's just more of them and it's really not a big deal anymore. Um but for us, that was more the normal we were there. And, I mean, I, I ran cross-country track, so a lot of the girls that I ran with were friends and we kept in touch. But, you know, the majority of my friends, kind of like the majority of the class there were male. And so you, you stuck together more as a class or more as a company. I kind of I think the way it was designed for you to do um, by the time I went through. Uh, and I think it's only even gotten more so in the in the years since. Um, now, that, that I think that kind of addresses the first part of it maybe. Um, sure. But as far as the challenges of the Navy and the Naval Academy and, and, and going into the fleet for women, I really, I mean, you talked about the XX versus XY chromosome. Um, I think it's more of a generational thing than male versus female challenges. I mean, I, I always like to laugh because early on when I checked into the fleet, um, I was first girl in my squadron, and there were a lot of comments from older pilots when they'd fly with me for the first time, you know, oh, I've never flown with a girl before and after a while I say well you know are we different because neither have I but I mean I really don't have any experiences as a male to compare it to so I, I kind of figured it all just came out in the wash um, so the real challenges that I ran into were were when I had my oldest my daughter on active duty because um, my younger two weren't born until well after I left and were, was committed as a reservist um, which is obviously a lot less stressful career-wise than, than active duty. Um, but my oldest, uh, not plans, not part of the whole, you know, career vision that my husband and I had set out. And so I was really surprised when I did have her uh, in, in some of the challenges that popped up. I hadn't foreseen it, hadn't really thought about it too much. I kind of figured, oh, I'll have a kid and hand her to my parents and deploy. It'll be cool. And uh, it's really not set up that way. I mean, as as you gentlemen both know from years in, um, what it takes for, you know, a single person or a, a child is person, or I should say someone without commitments as great outside of the military, that person can devote the hours and the energy and the time into, into doing the job and doing the job the way it needs to be done. Um, it's once you have something else pulling away on your time that, that things get dicey and you start failing on multiple levels. And that was the biggest thing for me. Um, a, knowing what I was getting into when I was pregnant, uh, I really didn't know. And, and because of the way our community is and the fact that there weren't any women, um, and, well, there weren't any women having babies in my community, that's for sure. Um, because of that, I kind of fought through it alone. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the blog. Um, but also it ended up kind of being a generational thing. So whereas... I thought I was having problems that were kind of related to me being a mother, trying to be a mom and trying to be a, a Marine, um, and single parenting for a lot of that part. Uh, I learned after I got out that a lot of guys were having the same kind of issues because they had wives who were career-oriented now. Uh, the, the typical military family isn't what it is. So I think more of a generational thing versus a male-female thing. Does that make sense? Perfect. Eagle One? Yeah, you uh, you had a couple of really interesting blog posts about uh, how performance should be judged in the fleet. And I, I kind of want you to walk through that. You you became a Marine Cobra helicopter pilot because you finished number one in your flight school class. Uh, can you kind of walk through what you meant by, uh, by that blog post about being judged by performance or by your actions and, and not by gender? Um, I'm trying to think back of exactly which one um, you're talking about right now, sir. Is it was it the parenthood one, or was it, I don't know, I realized. I, I, it, yeah, it had, I think it had to do with performance, uh, being judged by performance and not by some other standard. 
uh, well, you're were, you were making a pretty good a pretty good plea for just uh, being being judged on the basis of how you, how performance mm-hmm. and 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 a standardized let's say women in combat units if you just had a standardized uh, test that you know no waiver for for gender that that would be a good system. Well, yeah, and that's kind of the whole touchstone of thing. I and I, I know what you're talking about now, sir. I. Uh, one of the biggest things early on, like I said, was that, hey, you, you know, I've never flown with a woman. Well, a lot of things I heard in uh, Annapolis and early on in flight school, mostly from senior people, um, but a few colleagues uh, or peers, I should say, um, was that, you know, oh, women get this break or women get that break and, you know, blah, blah, blah. This, you know, women, they need women here, so quota system, et cetera. And, Obviously, that's poisonous because if I'm going to earn something, a I want to earn it. If I if I'm not going to earn it, I don't want it. It loses its value, and I certainly don't want to pull down the people around me. Uh, but b how do you know how do I differentiate the job I'm doing? Like, am I really doing a good job, or am I being told I'm doing a good job uh, just so that they can give good marks and so that I can have X number percent of women in this, this category? And uh, obviously, like we've talked about on email a little bit, that that's poisonous. So. During flight school, I flew with a wide variety of people um, and never really paid too much attention to, to the few comments I did hear. I don't want to sound like I was hearing a lot of things, but, you know, people will we'll talk every now and then. And one instructor after we landed, I remember, said to me, you know, hey, I'm going to mark you. I'm going to grade you harder on this stuff. I'm going to be harder on you and, and grade you stricter uh, than I think you should be or than, than some other people might grade you because you're a woman and I think that you're – being graded poorly by them or whatever. And I walked away from it like, well, how do I know how the heck I'm doing if everyone's giving me a different grades? So having not had anything to compare it to, uh, you know, as a man, you know, I just kind of figured it all came out in the wash and I, I, I wasn't going to worry about it. I was going to study, learn my stuff, and do the best I could, um, which is probably what most of us try to do. Um, as far as this, the one standard, and please interrupt me if I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole, because I can do that. No, we allow, we allow rabbit holes. <laughs> okay. Uh, as far as the one standard, um, it's it's interesting because my husband and I spend a lot of talking about this. He's infantry and with a couple combat tours to Iraq as a company commander. So we, he, he's a good wall to bounce things off of. And, um, you know, as much variation as you have in the average male Marine or, or male soldier or, or male in, in anyone, uh, as much variation as you have in those guys from the, the one in ten or two in ten that are, that you know are going to be great combat leaders to the the one or two out of that ten that that shouldn't be anywhere near the military. You've got the same variation in women, um, and so the idea that gender alone should be a disqualifying factor or gender should be the basis for grading things one way or the other just doesn't ring true. Um, we've all seen people who are meant you know who are cut out well for the job they're in, and we've all seen people who are cut out not at all for the job they're in, and. Um, if, if you're saying that women, by nature of their gender, are not cut out to to meet the same standards that it takes to be a Marine, then then what are you saying? You know, then we shouldn't be Marines, or we shouldn't be whatever. And, I, and that's not obviously true because there are some great women who are Marines, just as there are some great men who are Marines. And putting up barriers based on gender alone can act, in my experience, and I had I had a couple of experiences uh, overseas that taught me the truth of this. Um, it can do more damage to a unit. Than, than having someone who's not fully qualified in it, and it's 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 another way to be poisonous from within it. Just you know, in my mind, quotas or the the gender barriers like have a standard, and if this is a standard that you need to hold the job, whether it's a pilot or you know a, a, a your your basic marine rifleman or any any variation among any of the MOSs, uh, you need to have one standard, and we need to meet it. Uh, otherwise, it opens the door to all number of little problems. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, you're going to get a huge amen corner from here. You know, you have one single, fair, job-specific standard. If people can meet it, great. If not, they can't meet it. But you're you're right. Different standards, it's a canter, especially when you're in a line of work, you know, whether it's flying a helicopter or rucking a sack. Uh, Combat doesn't care what your chromosomes are. They they really don't. And when you when you're talking about standards, I, I luckily I was on mute because I laughed. I was remembering, uh, you know, I'm not an academy guy. I'm a ROTC guy, and uh, I know pretty close three dual service couples, and they're kind of different than you and your husband in this respect. And one of them, they were both in my uh, ROTC class, and uh, she <laughs> could 
do more. And I'm no slack, but she could do more push-ups than I could. She could do more sit-ups than I could, and she could run faster than I could. So <laughs> she, she scored better on the male PRT than I did. Um, and she's still on active duty. And here's here's where those three couples are in common. In all three cases, um, the they reach the point in their career, usually during the first shore duty. Where they 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 all looked you know when they cause they were coming up on their service obligation, uh, and they said we can't. See, of the three couples, two of them have two kids, one has four, and they believe it or not, wow, and they they, wow. they made the decision. Well, having twins can help. They uh, <laughs> they came to the point. Well, you know, one of us should stay on active duty, one shouldn't. Who has the best chance to be able to go the furthest? And the way the calculus worked for them is the the woman stayed on active duty, the husband went into the reserves and became Mr. Mom. Uh, one of them has a full-time job, the other two are literally Mr. Mom, but they're all still in the reserves. And uh, they, they came to that de- decision rather cold and calculated, and it has worked out pretty well for them. And you're also in a dual-service uh, couple as well. Your, your husband, I believe, is still on active duty, correct? He, well, he's active reserve now. He switched over active. a couple years ago, but pretty much... With the other dual service couples that you run into, is that kind of, you know, the people I know, is that the common experience where you reach that point where you go, hey, it'd be nice to have some crumb crunchers around, but I can't do this and have us both be in the fleet at the same time? How how does that conversation work out, and have you seen it work out pretty well as I have? I think I can't think of anyone off the top of my head who's who, of the dual service couples I know who both are still on active duty. So I think... They are, they've all had one either get out completely or switch to the reserves. Um, and, yeah, I, I think it it works out well. Um, the, the key to it working out well is that, obviously, they need to talk about it and, you know, make it work for them. Um, and that's one of the problems. I mean, it it's a dicey thing. You get someone who wants to do this, you know, commissioning source, enlisted, whatever whatever means, you know, you get to your career. Obviously, we do, we do what we do because we love it. And all of us, and so saying, you know, hey, I'm going to leave this job now to to stay home. It, it, it's got to be something you work out, both of them, and you know, with no bitterness. So when anyway. you when you yeah, when you uh, when you uh, were the only woman in your in your squadron, were you the first woman there in, in that squadron? And and as as this your career went along. Um, what kind of uh, – did you find that there were hurdles you had to jump over you thought should have been jumped over many years before, or was was had the path kind of been paved for you and you just uh, had to, to invent new uh, new processes to go along with that? Um, I was I was the first woman in my squadron, sure, and I was uh, – we got another woman in there during my – like right before my last deployment uh, with, with 369. Um, I really didn't think – um, I really didn't think there were any hurdles per se, and, and I wasn't looking for them. But it really—I had a great peer group, so I checked in with a bunch of guys that I'd known since you know basic school and flight school, and um, we all just kind of did our thing, and we had a really strong group of friends, and um, I think that kind of insulated me probably, if there was anything to insulate me from. Uh, you know, comments aside, like we'd always have funny things, like I check on the range at, at for CACs back when we were still in CACs up at Twenty Nine Palms, and. Um, I check in as gunfighter, you know, one seven or whatever my call sign was that day, and um, I would generally get like a pause and understand gunfighter things like that. You know, it gets your range of, of funny to stupid to weird comments, but for the most part, it was all laughable, and it was, you know, you do your job and just like everybody else. Um, especially as a as a boot in the squadron, you keep your mouth shut and do your job, and it, it works out a lot better for you. Um, but the only time I, I saw things that that I didn't expect to see were were when uh, I had my oldest. Um, and that was just more what I saw is the system being set up the way it had been for decades and not, as I've written about a lot in my blogs now, um, not necessarily being set up for successor people of the younger generation. Um, but that's not, I wouldn't see that as a system failure. I see that as something that we can change if it makes sense, if it makes the force better uh, and work on you, you brought up something I, I wanted to, to kind of reel back again. Uh, you used the G word again, generational. And something that I saw 
uh, and maybe you saw the same thing or maybe something different uh, from from your perspective. But what I saw on, on active duty, and you know, the sense of humor is the key, is the women that I served with. Uh, everybody, you know, professionals or professionals, really good working relationship, give as good as they get. Um, everybody was just focused on the mission, getting the job done. But then you would read some of the things that would come out from. Dakowitz are the uh, the senior leaderships of the Navy's advisors on women. And it almost seemed like a parallel universe. But then when you pulled the string on some of these advisors, they they tended to be uh, baby boomers. They tend to be from certain academic backgrounds, and it was it was almost as if some of the uh, speeches they would give uh, based upon the, the advice they were getting was negative help. And the fact that it threw grit in the gears of what was imperfect as any human relationship can be, but was a pretty good system on how we all work together. From your perspective, do you see a generational problem with the advice some of our senior leadership is getting on ways to, to make uh, you know gender integration work better? And, and if so, what can we do to perhaps get the younger generation's voices that I think are a little more reasoned into the conversation and as a result make things work a little better? That's a great a great question. I uh I gotta be honest for the majority of my time and I still know very little about what they've done behind the scenes, but for the majority of my time in the Marine Corps Dakowitz was a curse word. By, I mean for us. For for men, women, for my generation, we didn't we didn't know much about them except that they always seemed to be associated with controversy and with separating women from the men. Like like, hey, let's let's talk about the women. Well, let's not talk about the women. Let's talk about the Marine Corps. Like I I didn't join the Marine Corps to be a female Marine. I joined to be a Marine. And if you know if there are things about me specifically, like oh I you know I I don't know what I can say on on talk radio honestly, but physiological differences that you know, make me maybe have to go behind a bush to use the facilities versus just, you know, go right behind the aircraft. That's stuff I can figure out on my own. I don't need a committee to do that. Um, I always felt like the more they talked about issues for women specifically or things like that, the worse it made it Um, because, I, you know, we didn't join to stand out. We didn't join to, to, to be part of women in the Marine Corps. We joined to be Marines. And that was one of the problems, you know, I think I mentioned in an email once we used to joke, uh, and it's still a running joke uh, among my friends from the squadron, but that I was the first female Cajun-American combat helicopter pilot. It was a joke, um, you know, but it was kind of tongue-in-cheek based on things people would say at the time, like, oh, are you the first this, that? And I'm like, well, who, you know, who cares? Here, right here's the guy, the first, you know, Texas born in the year whatever this month you know, American male combat helicopter pilot. So it's when you separate, it, it does more harm than good. I think for us, uh, for my generation, if I can even speak for them, I don't know that I can, um, we just wanted to do the job, and if there were ways that we thought the job could be done better, we, we wanted to talk about it. Well, it, as you know, I'm I'm somewhat older than, than you and Sal, and and uh, it's not that we didn't have women in the Navy back when I first signed up, but they weren't allowed to do a lot of the the uh, jobs on board ship or, or to fly aircraft or a whole bunch of other things. Um, and later on in life, as a reservist, I was in a unit where we deployed to Saudi Arabia, and I had a unit that was had women in it. But you know, we were sand sailors. We always had the issues of. Uh, if we have a, you know, we're we're trying to have watch sections. Do we do we put all one watch section in a tent? And if we do that, do we have to have a separate tent for women, or do we have to have, you know, just a barrier and that kind of thing? That that uh, we were feeling our way through this. I mean, this was a long time ago, 20 plus years ago. So, uh, do you see any of that still working through the process process going on? I do, sir. And it's uh, it's funny you mention that. One of my when I talk about how delineating between men and women when you don't need to can create more problems. Um, on my uh, OIF-1, we, my squadron was over uh, in Iraq, and one of the problems that surprisingly popped up was where I live because before the deployment I talked to the other pilots and talked to the CO, and, and we said, hey, you know, I'm just going to live with the other pilots. I'm the only 
the only female Cobra pilot here, or a female pilot squadron. I don't want to be separated and left alone. It's important for us to plan and to talk as pilots, but it's important, I think, just for squadron unity and everything. They were my best friends. I didn't want to be away from them. Um, and so we got over there, and then there was kind of a big stir um, that I don't want to get into um, about the fact that there were people not comfortable with where I lived. So it ended up, you know, here we are in combat, but instead of talking about combat, we're talking about where Jeanette Haney lives. And um, so it, the, the solution was, you know, when we were down in Kuwait, I lived in a separate tent um, with other women. Uh, and when we were in Iraq, I lived with the guys. And that was a total non-issue. If someone had to change, they'd yell, dropping trowel or, um, you know, hey, Jeanette, look over here jokingly, because that was not something I really wanted to see, to be honest. Um and uh, it was really, really easy. Uh, and so making a big deal out of it, and we're still kind of feeling our way through that, obviously, the, uh, we as a force. Um, but I think that we make it so much harder than it needs to be. You know, I, I think you hit it right on there. Is, uh, sometimes we do make it harder than it needs to be. And I think the, the further people are away from, from being operators and being forward deployed, I think they're uh, – the more difficulty they can uh, put into the system, just like you mentioned before. Hey, we're reaching near the bottom of the hour and only got through half of my questions, which uh, means we got to have you back. But uh, are you thinking about putting some um, additional blog posts up over at USNI blog? And if so, uh, do you have a preview on some of the topics that you wanted to discuss? Um, I do want to, sir. I want to see a long-running thing, and I really want to kind of get away from the gender thing that really, until recently, apparently, hasn't been my shtick. Um, it just... I kind of reacted right off the bat to some of the comments like you alluded to earlier and, and not really where I want to go with it. I want it to be more of a, hey, this is, you know, I'm this generation or whatever. Not even a generational thing. These are things that are happening to dual military couples or these are things that are happening to Cajuns who fly helicopters. Um, but no, previews, um, I kind of go week to week. One of the things I kind of want to do a post about is professional discourse, um, but I haven't figured out really how to handle that one yet. It takes me a while to to figure out what I want to do. I, I write slowly, and uh, part of the problem is the kids. I never get it. I feel like I don't ever get a time to sit and think about what I'm going to write. But yeah, thinking uh, thinking is highly overrated. I I, I usually blog from the the dinner table and uh, uh-huh. the kids and the dogs and uh, um, the illustrious wife. Uh, that's life, but it's in a good way. Well, Jeanette, it's been a great pleasure having you on this afternoon. And just a reminder to everybody, our our, our guest for the first half an hour has been uh, Major Jeanette Haney, United States Marine Corps Reserve, and you can catch her over at the Naval Institute blog. And thank you very much. I look forward to reading your stuff. Thank you, sir. Thank you both. It was a pleasure being on. Thank you, Jeanette. Enjoyed it. Thanks, sir. And now we're going to transition to the second half of the show. And uh, for those that maybe have joined us a little late again, our guest for the next half hour is going to be Robin Roche-Paul. She's a United States Navy veteran, wife of a chief, and she also is author of the book Breastfeeding in Combat Boots. Robin, welcome to Interacts. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Well, great. And uh, it, you've got a, a great background. I think it's also a great flow into the, the conversation we had with uh, Jeanette because uh, you know a lot of times we talk about on the show what I call big pixel items. Uh, but really what makes uh, the Navy and the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard team, or really anybody in the military work, it's the individual soldier, sailor, airman, Marine. And depending upon what you are and, and what your your subspecialty, your specialty is, you could be between you know, 10 to 25% or greater women. And important part of being a woman, obviously, is how you make the family work as well. And you've joined in the conversation um, in a couple of different ways. But if you could, just as kind of an introduction to the listeners, what uh, what brought you that you wanted to, to write your book, Breastfeeding the Combat Boots, and what are some of the uh, central points you're trying to bring out in it? Well, what brought me to... Uh to wanting to write this is when I was in the military um, back in the early to mid um, 90s um, I of course wanted to balance my family and work life and waited until I was on shore duty um, and wanted to start my family and as a aviation and aircraft mechanic I was on the A6s uh, when they were still flying they've obviously since been decommissioned um, it, <laughs> 
I was in, you know, the military is already, as you just pointed out, a very male-dominated field. But then when you're in an even more male-dominated um, subspecialty, being an aircraft mechanic, um, there wasn't anything out there at the time that spoke to me about how I was supposed to combine the two of them. Um, there's a million and one books out there that mothers can buy uh, about raising families, about breastfeeding, about uh, pregnancy, all of that kind of stuff. But they're kind of written for either the stay-at-home mother or they're written for the white collar. She works in an office. And I'm not saying that that isn't a difficult thing to do, but <laughs> when you're in the military, um, you know, it's ten times uh, harder. And at the time, back in the 90s, there were no policies whatsoever governing any of this. So I was really kind of left up to my own to figure out, you know, questions like, as an aircraft mechanic, I worked with hydraulic fluid and jet fuel and oils and all of this kind of stuff, hazardous materials. Nobody could answer me as to whether that was safe for me to be doing that. Um, obviously, they pulled me off when I was pregnant, but then as soon as I came back to work at six weeks, Nobody knew if me getting doused in jet fuel or sucking down those fumes for 12 hours a day was going to get through my milk. Nobody knew. And I'm sitting there going, why hasn't somebody written a book about this? So <laughs> never dreaming, of course, that it would be me, um, you know, 10, 12 years later to be the one to actually write that. But um, I served. I had my eldest while I was um, on active duty, breastfed him for well over a year, made it work. And then when I was when my enlistment was up and I decided to get out because it's what was best for our family, my husband obviously has stayed in, um, I went back to school and got my degree and went on and got my international board certification as a lactation consultant. And friends of mine and mentors and coworkers and colleagues all kept saying, Robin, you should write the book. <laughs> you have the experience and you have the expertise. Write it because the mom's need it and so i did and here we are um the moms do need it i've sold quite a few copies it's award-winning and i actually just returned from um speaking over at aviano air base in italy the air force flew me over there to speak to their command personnel and um talk about these issues hazardous materials how to help the women why having a policy and and being supportive of women that want to combine having a family and more importantly breastfeeding how and why it's good and how it can be done successfully in the military so in a nutshell although that wasn't much of a nutshell um that's that's why I did it and where we are when you when you uh I first let me welcome you to the show and and secondly um when you uh, were on active duty and you had your first child, and you say there were no policies um, uh, that you were aware of, I mean, how has that changed? And and uh, is, are things better for, as far as you know, for people in the military who want to breastfeed? And and finally, what challenges out there remain? Right. Um, yes, it has changed greatly. When I say that there was no policies, there were no policies. You had your child. You had your six weeks, which is the same. Everybody gets, all women get six weeks. They get 42 days convalescent leave. And then from there, um, at that time, there was no policy in place whatsoever that gave you any deferment, nothing. You were back on full worldwide deployment at four months, and there was nothing specifically relating to breastfeeding. Now, there are policies in place. All of the branches have policies, with the exception of the Army. Um, the Navy has, I would consider, probably the second-best policy. The Air Force has got them beat on this one, that are specific breastfeeding policies, stating that, um, and it follows in line with the uh, recent laws that have come down with um, Obama and, and how um, employers are supposed to give their mothers certain numbers of breaks and certain amount of time and all of that kind of stuff, the military has followed suit. The Air Force offers um, six months deferment from deployment, and their policy specifically states 15 to 30 minutes every three to four hours. Um, and in my mind and in a lot of other people's minds, that's the best because that spells it out. There's no 
gray area. It's very black and white. This is the kind of time you get. The Navy gives 12 months deferment from deployment, but their how much time you can have, um, it's very vague. It's just between the mother and her supervisor, which leaves a whole lot of leeway. And if a supervisor doesn't get why it's a good idea to let the mother have the time to go pump, he can he or she can very easily say, oh, well, sorry, we can't do it. Whereas, like I said, the Air Force's policy is much more specific. And, you know, that's good for both sides. That's good for the supervisor because it gives them guidelines, this is what I'm supposed to offer. And for the mother, it gives her something that she can take to her supervisor and say, look, this is what you're supposed to be offering me. And um, so when that's kind of hazy like that, and like I said, the Army doesn't offer anything whatsoever. Um, So it is much better for the moms now um, because they have at least something in place that they can use. As for some of the challenges, uh, the big ones are the time and the place. And obviously, if you've got a mother who's on shore duty and isn't having to deploy and the kind of work she does allows her to have more time to go pump because let's say she's a a yeoman or a personnel man or something like that, that's much easier to fit time in the pump because she's basically doing paperwork and can kind of, you know, leave and nothing critical is going on. If she's an air traffic controller, if she's got a console, she's got to watch all the time. Um, if she's a mechanic, uh, flight line, she's got to work the flight schedule. Operational commitments always get in the way. And so for those moms, um, it's obviously much more difficult. And then, you know, there's always training exercises. There's... there's um, Comp 2X they got to go out on or a rim pack or something like that. And you've got these, you know, couple of week-long deployments that the moms have got to go on, so then they got to figure out they're on the ship, if they're going to pump their milk, where are they going to store it. I've worked with moms that have stored it in the medical um, freezers. Um, some of them just pump their milk and then literally dump it. They just pour it down the drain. Um, and that's really hard. <laughs> And other mothers, if they're out there listening and, and, you know, they've been there, you want to cry when you're pouring this hard-earned milk down the drain. Um, it's kind of hard for others to understand, but that's um, that can be difficult. I've worked with mothers in the Air Force and the Army. I worked with one Air Force mom that was a C-17 pilot, and she was going out on um, eight- to ten-day-long flights where she would leave with her crew and her of course as a transport pilot they have long flights anyway six eight hours at a time and so she would pump and um, she would go in the back while the co-pilot flew and she would pump and she could store her milk on the aircraft that worked out well for her Um, some helo pilots have been able to make it work i worked with another mom that was sent to afghanistan she shipped her milk home for four months And um, that was basically from the front lines. It was important enough to her that her baby get her milk while she was gone um, that that she made that work. So, yeah, hazardous material deployments, um, dealing with coworkers and supervisors that are not supportive, that's another big one. Um, But those are pretty much the main main issues that the moms have and that they come to me with with questions um, about, I would say. Yeah, the uh, the thing with the with the pumping, I you know, sea duty is sea duty. You know, whether you know the Air Force, you have the C seventeen pilots, the Navy side of the house, you know, the P three people, three hour pre flight, nine hour mission is not going to happen. But they do swap out pilots. I understand, so that's uh, you know something's workable. I, you know, shore duty though, I always kind of giggle when people say we don't have time for that. You know, you let people take a twenty minute smoke break. Um, you know, let's, let's take a let's take a milk break. I, I think we can all, you know, find reasonable people. I think can find reasonable accommodations. One thing I wanted to ask for you. I think your background is 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 you can appreciate this very much as a, as an aviation mechanic and with with your husband still in active duty. Uh, maybe he can give a, everybody a good snapshot of this. But like I mentioned with our previous guest, when I got my commission in the late '80s, uh, I pretty much served with women. Uh, throughout my career, um, and when it came to 
mothers on active duty that returned. Of course, there always was the concern, you know, with 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 toxics. And, and you're right. In the, in the 90s, it was all uh, it was all a guess. But really, the only complaint of substance that anybody ever had was if you were in a small shop. And let's stick with the aviation side of the house. If you have a, uh, you only have so many collateral duties inspectors or quality assurance representatives, and if somebody's going to disappear for six to eight weeks, it really wasn't an anger at the individual. It was an anger at the Navy because who was going to be by CDI for this shift? And it was trying to get a replacement uh, was always very difficult. People would talk about we need to have a system in place to the, to minimize the impact on the command, you would have some units that would go to deploy, and you'd have a critical NECC. Half of them happened to be female, and just as a roll of the dice or whatever you want to roll, half of them wind up having to come off duty because they're pregnant within a few months period, uh, either before or right after deployment. And the Navy system was very slow in responding to get the commands, uh, the personnel they needed to make mission. Has, is the Navy getting better at being a little more responsive to that, of not just supporting the, 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 our sailors who are becoming mothers, but also supporting the commands who may be losing people with critical skills at a critical juncture? Um, from talking with my husband, because, of course, he's, you know, he's 22 years in, he's a chief now, um, he has seen the changeover from when he joined, you know, like, like I was back in the early 90s, late 80s, um, up until now. And from what he has told me, yes, the Navy is getting better at getting those critical um, job specialties filled when we know that we've got a woman that's leaving. They're, they're, they're getting quicker on the uptake and getting them filled so that you don't have um, the billets gapped um, like that. So I think they're getting better. Um, I wouldn't say it's 100%. There's still there's there's still the the anomalies out there. There's still the women that come up at the last minute and oh oh sorry I'm pregnant and you know just from my own personal that always kind of annoyed me as another female. I was like really you couldn't have planned this just a little bit better because. You're making it look bad for all of us, um, but I would say overall, it seems to me that 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 is getting better, and I think in part because they've got better policies in place, and they've got the Office of Women's Policy that is working um, hand in hand to to take care of some of those um, issues, so that that isn't a problem as much um, anymore. Yeah, I think I read an interview with you in the. One of the one of the Virginia newspapers where you raised also the the fact that a lot of times before deployment many things happen to other people, uh, you know somebody gets popped for a DUI or uh, or you know a car wreck or something and and that, you know that that doesn't cause the Navy to grind to a halt and neither should should uh, pregnancy and some of these other matters. Uh, one of the, the the when I was reading your book and talking to my wife, who was a long time allegedly legal leader, one of the things that I found interesting was that sometimes it's not the great big problems, you know, whether or not you're allowed to to have children or or breastfeed or anything, but that but the the small indignities. And I think one of the stories you have that I, I like uh, that have been uh, is the one about trying to go to get medical treatment and the and the inconsistency in uh, in in how you were able to do that. Do you kind of go through that process? Um. Which I'm 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 sorry I'm trying well, to think of which, ha- which exact wear, yeah having to wear a uniform to go to the uh, to the doctor okay, but yeah that's that's what I thought you were going on about um yeah that that's one of those little small things that you wouldn't really think would be a problem and it is and I don't know if you you know all were aware of of the photographs that came out a couple of months ago um with the Air National Guard moms that were photographed breastfeeding in uniform that started that whole huge firestorm but this has been a a problem for ages and it seems to be um more navy uh specific than it is in the other branches but yeah in a nutshell mom is back off of convalescent leave, so her six weeks are up, and she needs to take her baby in for, let's say, four-month well-child visit, 
you know, babies have to have them two months, four months, six months, and then like a year. In the Navy, at least, and I have clarified this with my husband and other military, you know, Navy people, Navy personnel. In the Navy, at least, if you need to go to medical and you're not on leave, you have to be in uniform, even if it's for your son or daughter or whatever. You've got to take the baby with you. It's for their appointment, but mom has to be in uniform. And she gets there, and the baby's hungry, and she wants to feed the baby. And somebody's yelling at her, writing her up, reporting her because she's out of uniform because she's feeding the baby. This shouldn't be a problem. And the reason that I have an issue with it is everybody keeps saying, well, she should just take a bottle and feed the baby that way, and this won't be an issue anymore. But if you understand the mechanics of making milk and milk supply, and for a lot of women, their milk supply in the military is very tenuous at best because they aren't given enough time or a place to pump regularly and often enough to keep their supply up. So telling her that she's got to feed the baby a bottle while she's there at medical, that's one less time that she's getting to have the baby at the breast, which is much better for keeping the milk supply up than feeding the baby a bottle and then using a pump. The best pump in the world is never going to be as good as a baby is. So asking her to do that or the other option that I've had people say is, well, she should change out of her uniform and go in civilian clothes. Well, one, again, if you're in the Navy, that's not an option. And two, even if you're in the other services, you have to go home, change your clothes, pick the baby up, go to medical, come back, change your clothes again, and back into your uniform. You don't have time to do that. It's ludicrous. And this happened to me. I got written up for it when I was in because... It was that very thing. I was there for a well baby checkup for my son, and I was in uniform, and he got hungry. I was discreet. I wasn't showing anything. He needed to eat. And you would have thought the world was coming to a screeching halt, and I was flashing everybody or something. It, it was ridiculous. And it still, to this day, is a problem for some women. So um, my take on this is, we have uniform regulations written for everything else down to how long our fingernails can be and what color nail polish we can wear and what size earrings. Why can't we put something in there about being in uniform and breastfeeding? It, it seems like it's a really simple solution um, to, yeah, what everybody kind of thinks is not a problem but actually is kind of a problem. When the um, When you look at the military, it writ large it's obviously it's it's skewed to a much younger demographic um, yes and for non-military people out there um what are some important things when we talk about um active duty or, or active duty because you can have reservists that are activated of course and, you know, serving military people who are also young mothers in, in breastfeeding what what are some demographic differences uh, between uh, a cohort of military people versus a cohort of civilian people and as far as those mothers go, as far as, you know, single mothers, married, age of first child, is there a big difference between the military mother from a demographics point of view or does it parallel uh, civilian society pretty close? No, um, your demographics in the military skew much more to um, the younger the younger mothers, um, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but uh, you're looking at the vast majority of, of the moms in the military right now are um, a, like, I want to say off the top of my head, about 11% are single. Um, they're usually between 20 and about 26 years old. Um, the vast majority are the enlisted moms. And if you're kind of paying attention to this, these are all of the moms that honestly um, need to be breastfeeding the most because they're the ones that aren't being paid very much. And so buying formula is going to be uh, a difficult proposition for them. That stuff's expensive. If you've ever gone out and, you know, looked at it, um, you can drop $1,500, $2,000 a year on formula alone. Um, I tell moms, that uh, buying a breast pump is about $300, and that's going to last you for well over a year. But that same amount of money spent on formula is going to last you mm, a 
couple of weeks at most. So, you know, when you've got an, an E3 who's struggling because she's single and, and she's making E3 pay, um, breastfeeding from an economic standpoint makes um, a lot of sense, much less I'm not even talking about, you know, the health benefits for her and her baby. But back to the demographics, yes, um, there there is a difference. Another, another point to make is that you have a higher um, number of minorities in the military as well because the military is very much an equal opportunity employer. And, again, in the breastfeeding literature, the moms that we see having the most difficulty and having the lowest breastfeeding rates are the African-American moms and Hispanic moms, of which you have higher numbers um, in the military. So combine that with the younger age and the higher percentage of single mothers in the military and yeah you've got you've got some more difficulties right there on top of on top of everything else so yes it it does make a difference one of our commenters on our uh, chat room uh, raised the raised the issue of of a woman on sea duty on board ship deploying and and the difficulties there can they is is there a way I mean, you know, he, he writes, uh, a woman can't be a good mom if they're on sea duty. But you, you've also discussed uh, several ways in which men, women have made extraordinary efforts to get uh, their breast milk uh, back to their to their uh, child at home. Uh, can could you kind of can can is sea duty compatible with breastfeeding? And uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the extraordinary efforts that uh, some women have made? Well, keeping in mind that the Navy has the 12 months from deferment. Um, uh, uh, deferment from deployment. So if a mom is um, on sea duty, when she becomes pregnant, she's going to be taken off the ship, and, yes, somebody else is going to have to take her place. So she'll be off for those nine months, and then she'll have the 12 months after the birth of the baby. So if she is still breastfeeding after 12 months, and I'll put in the disclaimer here that there's nothing at all wrong with toddler breastfeeding, and a number of military moms do continue to nurse past 12 months. Keeping all of that in mind, the baby's past 12 months, so they're only nursing a couple of times a day. Um, I have worked, actually, with a couple of moms that either made it past that year, and so they obviously were now back up for deployment, or they were sent out before the 12 months was up because it was a training exercise. This deferment from deployment does not cover any type of short-term training exercise, so I've worked with moms that have been out there for up to six weeks. Um the two that come to mind, one was an officer, so she had a stateroom that she only had to share with one other person, and she had a stockpile of milk ahead of time that she had pumped that she left with her husband that he could feed the baby with. And then while she was out there, she pumped and dumped her milk, which means she expressed it and she poured it down the sink. She did that to keep her milk supply up. It worked. When she got back after the six weeks, her milk supply was still in place, and the baby latched back on. Everything was fine. Um, the other mom was enlisted, and she was sent out for uh, about three weeks, and she pumped and saved her milk, and she was able to keep it um, in the medical freezers. And because she was enlisted and she was in the enlisted birthing, which has the coffin racks, three stacked up, um, no privacy there. You can't sit up in those racks on the older ships. I don't know about the newer ships. I guess you can in the newer ones, but in the older ones you can't. So she went to medical to pump because she could pull the curtain around herself, and that way she had um, some privacy. And like I said, she she stored it on board the ship, and then when she got back after the three weeks, she was able to, you know, get it back to her baby. Baby latched back on. Everything was good. As it stands right now, there is no way to ship milk off of the ship um doesn't work i've talked to my husband he's air crew on the c2 he says yeah we could do it but there's nothing in place for it to be done so that's kind of where we stand um right now the moms that have been deployed that are in the air force and the army and stuff like that that have gone overseas when they've shipped milk home they've used commercial carriers and um very expensive but that's how they were able to um get at home. So yeah, you know, for your Navy moms, if they've made it past that year, there really isn't anything for them to do other than 
pump and dump or pump it and keep it on board the ship and just bring it back with them when they disembark. Hey, as we're uh, coming with just a couple minutes left, I, I wanted to, to let you throw out a sales pitch real fast. Let's say, <laughs> let's say you, you, you have a military leader out there. Uh, he, he grew up with six other brothers. He's not married because he's going to wait till he makes colonel before he decides he has time to invest in a family. Uh, he doesn't recognize that women are part of the male species. All he is is focused on mission, 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 mission. Uh, when you say breastfeeding to him, how do you tell him the physical positive benefits it's going to be to his sailors or marines if they're allowed to breastfeed as far as their recovery time and their ability to get back uh, in ship shape, so to speak? Lots of reasons. Um, Mom's going to be uh, back in physical shape much faster because she's completing her reproductive cycle. Um, She's not going to bleed for as long. Uh, She's going to lose weight a lot faster. Moms burn up to 500 calories just sitting still because they're making milk. So combine that with her physical um, training, uh, she's going to pull the weight off much quicker. She can back in her uniform, her regular uniforms faster. Provide you know makes for a much better uh, appearance. Um, she's physically going to be in so much better shape. Uh, breastfeeding affects all of her systems: cardiovascular, immune, all the rest of that. Um, she's not going to be absent as much because her baby isn't going to be sick as often. Um, breastfeeding provides so much in the way of immunities for the short term, and I'm not even getting into long-term health. Um, her reduction in breast cancer, baby's reduction in uh, diabetes and obesity later in life. So there's a lot of physical reasons um, to do it, but when I talk to commanders and, and officers in charge and, and you know individuals like that, I also mentioned to them, you're looking at mom's morale. Um, If she feels supported, she's more likely to be a better soldier or sailor when she's at work because she knows she's going to get the time that she needs um, to take care of of pumping. Um, And again, the whole thing about not being absent as much because her baby is not as sick. So it's a morale booster. It's uh, mission readiness. If mom is there because, again, her baby isn't sick as often, so she's not having to take time off, now she can complete her work, which helps the whole unit, the whole squadron, whatever, get their work done. So it's it's a mission um, readiness issue for commanders. And I also look at the even bigger picture. You're looking at retention. If mom feels that she's been supported, she's more likely to re-enlist when her enlistment comes up because she wasn't being told no all the time and not supported in her efforts to breastfeed. So economically and health-wise, it makes a lot of sense for all the branches of the military to support their breastfeeding um, mothers, and they should. The DOD has a directive. It's uh, 1010.10 that says that they're supposed to follow the Healthy People 2020 goals, and one of those Healthy People goals is uh, breastfeeding, and it's plain as the nose on your face that the DOD should be doing this. So that's my elevator speech for why um, the military should be supporting their mothers to breastfeed. Well, Robin, it's been great having you on. Do you have something uh, you're you're up to in the future you want to tell us about that uh, we can advertise for you here? Um, I'm always up for any speaking engagements. Um, anywhere. Like I said, I just got back from Aviano um, Air Base, and I, I'm on Facebook. I continue to help moms through my website. Um, I don't have any plans right now. I'm finishing up nursing school, and I'll probably be revising the book here um, within the next year or so because there's always new information to, to to put in there. But I would invite everybody to check out the Facebook page. It's you know, facebook.com slash breastfeeding and combat boots. Um, a place for moms to talk amongst one another and come visit the website. I'm always putting up new information on there, too, and check out my blog if you get a chance. Great, Robin, and uh, I'd like to thank you as well for taking time this afternoon to come join us on MidRats and uh, give a nod to your husband for us. I will, and thank you for having me on here. Yes, ma'am. And thank you very much for everybody that joined us live today or is getting us on the archive. Next week will be a Labor Day Best Of. And week after that, we'll be back live with a show focused on the NORTHCOM mission. Thank you, everyone, once again, and I hope you have a great Navy Day. Molly, 
Maloney wants to marry me, and so leave the strand and Piccadilly, or you'll be to blame. Oh, love has barely drove me silly, hoping you're the same. for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.